Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Kia ora and welcome to Our Changing World on RNZ National with me, Alison Balance. Tonight, we are heading to the stratosphere with NASA and a bunch of astronomers aboard the largest flying telescope in the world. Its name is SOFIA, which stands for Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. Essentially, it's a plane with a very large hole cut out of its side. We, and of course that's in the sense of the royal we, will be looking at the birth of stars and at Sagittarius A, the supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy. Now when I asked to join a Sophia mission out of Christchurch, I was a little anxious. I'm a zoologist, and astrophysics? Well, it just sounds so complicated. But I was reassured by the catch cry of the Sophia communications manager. There are no stupid questions. This is astrophysics. That's all right, then. Now time to do my very important flight preparations. I'm about to go on a flight with NASA. How cool is that? And they've sent me a list of things I've had to fill out. And one of the first things they instructed me was I'll need to bring my own travel mug and it'll need to have a locking lid. So here I am, hot and cold travel mug, 450 mils. For about seven weeks each southern winter, as it has for the last four years, Sophia, which is usually based out of California, is based at Christchurch Airport, where I'm met by the media minder who is tasked with keeping us journalists in hand. Nick Veronico, I'm the manager of communications for the Sophia Observatory. So you're the minder for us tonight? I am the babysitter and cat herder. Great, and I do have my coffee cup with the locking lid. Excellent, because I'll be checking shortly. First on the agenda, an introduction to Sophia and a safety briefing. The NASA DLR Sophia is a special aircraft, a former airliner reconfigured to serve as an airborne observatory. This Boeing 747SP has been extensively modified. For my fellow journalists and I, the highlight of the long safety briefing was the EPOS, the Emergency Personal Oxygen Supply. The other thing you want to do is make sure that this canister is right underneath your mouth. Basically, it's an oxygen canister inside a smoke-proof plastic bag that you put over your head. On board, we'll have to have it with us at all times. Ooh, time for another briefing. Welcome to the Sophia mission brief for Flight 422. Flight 422 means this is the 422nd Sophia flight. It'll last 10 hours. We will land at the 421 telescope. Mission systems are good to go. There are two pilots. 
My name is Jim Les. And you're one of the pilots? And I'm one of the pilots for Sophia. So what's our flight plan for tonight? Well, this one, we actually stay fairly close to New Zealand, um, not as far south as we sometimes go. This is the first flight of a series with an instrument that hasn't flown in a while, so they have to do a bunch of calibrations, boresight, focus, kind of all the same stuff you would do with a, a very sensitive camera. So your job is to keep the plane flying straight keep it and on level? on course, on time. Um, the whole plan is based on being on time. Um, because the stars are in a certain spot at a certain time, Earth rotates so they move, and everything gets messed up if we're not there on time. We just need to be within a cup, about two minutes, and so it's not too bad. Our flight plan for the night has ten legs, and there's a different target on each leg. These flights are planned way in advance so that the telescope will be pointing at the correct part of the sky at the best time. Tonight we'll execute a big U-shape, more or less, around New Zealand, only way out to sea. From Christchurch, we'll fly first south, then north to the latitude of East Cape. Turning south again, we'll cross the Chathams, then head west over the Auckland Islands on the way to our southernmost point at about 52 degrees south. Then it's back north to way off the coast of Taranaki before turning home to Christchurch. We'll start at 37,000 feet and as we use up fuel and get lighter, we'll climb higher into the stratosphere. As well as the core NASA team on board to run the plane and the telescope, there are also guest scientists who have been allocated time to peer into the far depths of space, along with me and the other media guests. Hello, uh, g'day, my name is Carl Krasinski from the ABC in Sydney, Australia. A.K.A. Dr Carl. I'm Jeremy Corbett from, uh, from Three which is probably easier explained as TV3. Excellent. So what are you looking forward to the most? The sense of awe and wonder from seeing what human effort put together to form a team can then produce in terms of technology, knowing that 10 years, a century from now, some of the knowledge we get tonight will make our great-grandchildren's lives a little bit better. I've always been a big fan of the SMC and the LMC, and uh, in the briefing I hear we're going to have a look at that Magellanic Cloud, so pretty excited about looking that far. Blows my mind. And what are these acronyms that you use? <laughs> Smaller Magellanic Cloud and Larger Magellanic Cloud. Yeah, he knew that. He's just making me explain it. No, I like no. to keep people guessing, Dr. Carl. So what does Sophia stand for? The, uh, the, the space on fun in aircraft. Stratospheric <laughs> um, observatory for far infrared astronomy. I mean, if you're not into acronyms, you're on the wrong plane, right? NASA loves them. That's right, and you are clutching the requisite water bottle, so what are our instructions for how much water we have to drink? 600 ml every, every two hours, I think. Might even do that every hour. They've got a fridge full of stuff, which is awesome. Doors are closing, it's point of no return. And yep, it's time for another briefing. Right. Uh, welcome to flight number 422. So what's it like inside a flying telescope? Well, it's a plane that's had all the usual paraphernalia removed. There's a few seats at the front for us to sit on during takeoff and landing. Towards the back, there's rows of monitors and desks and computers. There's about 25 people on board, and we're free to get up and wander around. So what are we looking at down there? So you're looking aft in the airplane to the uh, telescope cavity bulkhead that we built, and that's holding back a million pounds of force in flight. The blue area is the telescope the silver is the instrument. Tonight we have a spectrometer. It's German-built, and we call it PPLS. So on each flight, you're just using one instrument? One instrument at a time. It takes us about two days to change, and we have seven instruments. 
So mostly spectrometers. The telescope is riding on a spherical bearing uh, on a 15 micron layer of pressurized oil. So a, a micron is one human hair's width. Then it's gyro stabilized and pneumatically isolated. So if you put a laser pointer on the end of the telescope and you're flying at Mach 0.85 at 41,000 feet, it will hold the, that laser point in the size of a New Zealand dollar at 30 miles. What do you think of the telescope there, Carl? Um, it's amazing that they've managed to stuff a 100-inch telescope, which used to be the world's biggest telescope for many years, into an aeroplane and make it work. While it's flying. While it's flying. And they've got some sort of image stabilisation, the equivalent of bouncy bungee cords, but far more sophisticated, to keep the camera dead steady. So we shake and it does not. The telescope does not. Captain's log, 10 to 8 aboard the Sophia Mission Flight 422. And I've spent the last hour sitting up in the cockpit with the two pilots and with Dr. Carl as we headed south from Christchurch. And we got to about 50 degrees south and we were just starting to see the aurora when we had to turn around on the pre-programmed flight plan. And what's happening at the moment is they are calibrating the new instrument. So for the last few weeks they've been flying with a different instrument. Tonight is the first night with the Fifi LS instrument and they just need to set it up and calibrate it for about an hour. So while people are busy doing that, we're just hanging around waiting. The science experiments haven't started yet. So currently the telescope is trained on Callisto, the fourth moon of Jupiter. It was Galileo who first observed Callisto in 1610, and his discovery showed the importance of the newly developed telescope as a tool for astronomers. I wonder what Galileo would make of Sophia's two-and-a-half-metre telescope. So we look at the infrared spectrum. Uh, as a matter of fact, we look at the mid and far infrared, and water vapour blocks infrared from reaching the ground. So even on the highest telescope at Mauna Kea, uh, they can't see all of the wavelengths that we can see. So we're, we come to New Zealand because your nights are long. They're almost 12 hours. We're at home there, eight and a half. Uh, the water vapor here drops down to about 26,000 feet. At home in California and over the central United States, they have thunderstorms to 50,000 feet. So we come here for the long, cold nights, low water vapor. And there's a lot of things that we can see from Christchurch that we can't see from the northern hemisphere. Like the Magellanic Clouds. Magellanic Clouds. The uh, galactic center is very high in the sky here, so uh, we spend a lot of time looking at it. And uh, we come down, fly 10 hours. Uh, our typical flight profile is we take off, climb to 35,000 feet. We open the uh, telescope cavity door, and then we let the ambient air, which is tonight it was minus 55 Celsius when we open the door at 37,000 feet. We let the ambient air cool the telescope, and then we uh, burn off fuel, climb to 39,000 feet and start observations. Uh, we're going to stay at 39,000 uh, for quite a while tonight because the water vapor is so low. And then we'll climb to 41,000 and 43,000. And at the end of the flight, we can climb to 45,000 if we need to for maybe the last hour, but we're not doing that tonight. How do those heights compare to commercial jetliners that fly around the world? 
So most commercial jetliners, their uh, engines are most efficient at 32 to 37,000 feet. So we're sometimes eight to 10,000 feet higher than they would be. And the telescope itself, it doesn't stick out of the plane, does it? No, it doesn't. It weighs 17 tons, and uh, there's a pressure bulkhead that separates the telescope glass from the instrument, and the telescope glass is out uh, exposed to the elements, and we're in a pressurized environment just like any other airliner. Uh, the instrument is on the pressurized side, so if we need to make uh, adjustments in flight to the instrument, we could if we needed to. Does the telescope glass ever need cleaning? Every once in a while it does. We, uh, we can wash it, and at NASA in California, we have the facility to remove the telescope and re-silver the mirror if we had to. We anticipate doing that every five years, but uh, with the washings we've given it, we expect to go maybe seven or ten years without having to do that. So Sophia's been flying since 2010? We were doing uh, tests from 2010 to 2013, and uh, we became fully operational in 2014. So this is almost our fifth year of operations. And what's its lifespan? How long is it going to be able to keep flying and doing good science for? It should have a 20-year lifespan from 2014. Uh, and as far as 747s go, this airplane is very young. It has about 11,000 cycles, and a cycle is a takeoff and a landing. Most airplanes this age would have 40 or 50,000 cycles, so we've got a lot of life left in the airplane. And this is the very historic Clipper Lindbergh. It was christened on May 20th of 1977 by Anne Morrow Lindbergh, the widow of Charles Lindbergh, on the 50th anniversary of his solo flight across the Atlantic. And then after NASA got it in uh, 2007, uh, Charles Lindbergh's grandson, Eric Lindbergh, came and rechristened the airplane Charles Lindbergh. So it's got a lot of history. It does have a lot of history. What a plane. Albrecht Poglitsch from the Max Planck Institute in Germany is the original designer of Fifi LS. That's the instrument being used on tonight's mission. Albrecht flew with the telescope that came before Sophia, the Kuiper Airborne Observatory, KAO it was known as, which ended service in 1996. Here, finally, is someone who can tell me what Fifi LS actually stands for. It stands for Field Imaging Far Infrared Line Spectrometer. This goes back because on the old airplane, the KAO, 25 years ago and more, uh, we had an instrument which we also built, which was called FIFI. So it's FIFI LS, like the luxury version of FIFI, right? What does it let you record? What does it let you see? It is a line spectrometer and it's also imaging. So in principle, it, is, it has elements of a camera, but a camera, even if it can do colors, the colors are relatively broad bands in wavelength. Whereas we can do images in individual spectral lines. That means when you observe those lines, they tell you characteristic things about the medium you observe. Think of it as being a bit like a prism. If you shine white light through a prism, it bends the light, so you get a spectrum of visible colors, a rainbow. And actually, this is how, back in 1800, the famous astronomer Sir William Herschel discovered infrared light. He shone light through a prism, measured the temperature of each of the colours, 
and realised the hottest temperature was in an invisible part of the spectrum. It was beyond red, hence the name infrared. Far infrared, which is what Fifi LS uses, is the part of the infrared spectrum furthest from visible light. And by the way, if the name Herschel sounds familiar, he has had a space telescope and a land-based telescope named after him. He also discovered the planet Uranus in 1781, which is very fitting as the last science leg of tonight's SOFIA mission will be looking at one of the rings of Uranus. But we've got other things to look at first. Albrecht started building Fifi LS, but it was completed by Alfred Kraber from the University of Stuttgart. Alfred is also director of the German Sophia Institute, and he's on the plane tonight too. It's a high-tech, complicated machine. It uh, works in the far infrared, so this is between radio and visible, and uh, it uses wavelengths which are 100, 500 times longer than what we usually have, so it's uh, thermal radiation, and it can record the colors there. So color intensity distributed along the... uh, the wavelengths, and it can uh, not only record colors, it can record these colors at uh, several positions in the sky at the same time. So you get uh, a full set of data in one shot, and in addition it has two channels, so we can get a whole range of uh, wavelengths in one go. But it has to be very cold in the instrument, so it's cooled with liquid air, and in addition with liquid helium, which is even colder, and then we have a third tank where we pump on the helium, so we are about um, one and a half degree above the absolute zero. It's the coldest spot here in the whole aircraft, (laughs) and probably right now in in all of the region around us. That's because the detectors have to be very dark so that they can detect this weak radiation. If, If the detectors were warmer, they would produce heat and radiation so that they would be blind. I'm Randolph Klein, instrument scientist for FIFLS. That means basically we take the data for guest observers. Some of them are here, some of can't make the trip here, and then have to make sure that we get what they requested. So what is it that you're collecting? Our instrument is a fine-infrared spectrometer. That means we take spectra over a region because we map these regions. Typically, we are looking at transitions of ionized carbon, ionized oxygen, or neutral oxygen, and basically the radiation we get, we can use these as thermometers of the gas. And so we are basically looking at how the, the state of the gas, how warm it is. From that, we deduce what processes are working in these clouds, how the stars that have formed react back onto the gas they formed from and how this is a feedback cycle. We want to understand how that feedback works. So gas clouds collapse under gravity to form stars. Now one of the mysteries is that the first stars that form in a gas cloud seem to slow down the formation of further stars. So one of the questions this research is looking at is why star formation is not as fast as we might have expected. For the first proper observing leg of tonight's flight, we're looking at HE2211, It's a star-forming region, apparently, and the scientists are trying to map it so they can tell if it's producing stars slowly or quickly. It's millions of light-years away. But our next target, 30 Doradus, is in the large Magellanic Cloud. 
it's comparatively close, almost in our galaxy's outer suburbs. If you live in the Southern Hemisphere and have ever looked up at the Milky Way on a clear night, you'll have seen the two Magellanic Clouds. They're the faint, smudgy objects that look like clouds, but aren't. The scientist keen to know more about 30 Doradus is Melanie. My name is uh, Melanie Chevance. So you've got a project on tonight? So the project is to observe uh, a region called 30 Doradus. It's a very bright star-forming region in the Large Magellanic Cloud, uh, which is the closest uh, small galaxy to the Milky Way. So what interests you about it? Um, so what is interesting is that uh, it's really the brightest region that is close to us so that we can really observe. And we can observe in detail uh, the interaction between the really bright and hot stars with the medium surrounding them. So the gas and the dust, for example. And that's also interesting because the Large Magellanic Cloud is a small galaxy. And the idea is that the chemical composition of the Large Magellanic Cloud is supposed to be close to the first galaxies of the universe. So that's one step to understand how the first stars of the universe have formed. Melanie's off to watch her data coming in from the Large Magellanic Cloud, and it's my chance to catch up with Mission Control. Uh, my name is Randy Gracious, and I'm the mission director on SOFIA. What I do is I actually uh, coordinate all of the activities on board between the scientists and the telescope operators and the flight deck. I always think of it as a, as a wheel, and I'm the hub. And the spokes go out towards the, the telescope operators, the scientists, and one up to the flight deck, as well as sometimes to you guys, to the safety techs, to the mission systems people. All those are the sort of the spokes. They all communicate with the hub. The hub is me. And how many missions are you flying while you're down here? I think it's about 25 missions. Yeah, 12 with uh, the first instrument that we had on, and then we had the occultation, and then six with this instrument, and six with the next instrument. Does weather ever affect your, the flights? Weather has affected us. It can prevent us from landing in Christchurch. So the very first time we deployed here, I was on a flight that we got diverted to Auckland, and we had to land in Auckland and spend the night there and then get the plane back the following day. Um, so the main problem we have is fog on landing. So what excites you most about SOFIA as a flying telescope? It's a one-of-a-kind telescope that can actually observe the universe we're the only ones that can observe the universe in the wavelengths that we can observe. There's a lot of really, really amazing ground-based telescopes that can observe the universe in wavelengths that, that we're not expert at, but they can't observe in the wavelengths that we can. So the only telescopes that can observe at the wavelengths that we observe at are either ourselves or the ones in space. Right now, there's nothing in space that can observe at the wavelength we're at. And so when we're opening our door, we're looking at stuff that you can't see from the ground, even at the best observatory on the ground. So I, I really like that we're mapping the, the center of the galaxy or large molecular clouds in carbon and oxygen and molecules that you can't detect from the ground because it's all blocked by water vapor. And we're not blocked by that same water vapor up here in this airplane. So it's an eye in the sky. It really is, isn't it? Yeah, totally. It's a very interesting hybrid between a ground-based telescope and a space-based telescope. That's the way I like to think of it. It's one o'clock in the morning and we're just about to turn another corner. We're at the southernmost point of our trip, not quite 52 degrees south, and out the window is a brilliant aurora, the best I've ever seen. 
Now, Jeremy, you've just been on bended knees. I have. <laughs> proposing to the skyline. <laughs> a bit of aurora. Just a glow on the horizon, but we are heading south, tracking south, so we might might get an even better show in a, in a couple of minutes. Ooh, bonus aurora, we I like reckon. It. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating. What's the highlight of the trip for you so far? I think the highlight is sort of passing security and getting into the briefing, and you're like, I'm in. They can't stop me now. Possibly seeing the uh, larger Magellanic cloud on the, on the monitors showing us what the telescope was picking up. That would be my highlight. Me? I'm enjoying the whole experience, but especially the enthusiasm of everyone for the pure science that Sophia carries out and for the way the telescope is giving us glimpses into the universe that we wouldn't otherwise see. Now the plane just did a wriggle, is that because we're turning a corner? Yeah, we just finished uh, a leg on uh, the Magellanic Cloud on the Cetiroides region and we are now turning for the Galactic Centre, uh, which is at a different position. And so we have to turn the aircraft around as quickly as we can do, acquire the new target and uh, continue observing. So did this last run, this last leg, was that successful? Oh yeah, we extended a map that we started last year and uh, tomorrow we'll extend the map to uh, in another direction. So we make it a larger and the data fits very nicely together, so it's looking very good right now. So what's your favourite region? Oh, my favourite region is, is being observed now. It's the galactic centre. So uh, this is uh, where we have a black hole in the centre and we have a cluster of very hot uh, stars very close to the black hole, but this is a stable configuration. Uh, but these very hot stars have to be very young, maybe only a million years, a couple of million years old. And meanwhile, we know that these stars cannot be transported close to the galactic center, so to the black hole, so it, they have to have formed there, and that means we have to have a mass transportation into the galactic center, and uh, that's what I'm trying to assess, how the mass came in there, how it uh, starts spiraling in. So we know that around, the, around this black hole there is a circumnuclear ring, and where the mass is streaming in, but now I'm trying to see the velocity of this ring and see where mass from the outside can stream into this ring and how it continues to the black hole. And whereabouts is this black hole? Oh, it's in the centre of our galaxy, so if uh, so people... So it's our black hole? Yeah, it's our black hole, yeah. There may be more than one, but uh, at least there, at this position there's only one, yeah. It's far enough away not to be scared. <laughs> I'm not scared. I'm amazed. He's talking about Sagittarius A, a supermassive black hole at the centre of the Milky Way. Of course, we can't actually see it. But we have lots of evidence that it exists, and given that, I reckon it's incredible how much we've learned about it using tools like SOFIA. What I also like is how history keeps popping up tonight. I talked about Herschel earlier. Well, astronomers using the 4.2-metre William Herschel telescope in the Canary Islands discovered the very first evidence for the existence of Sagittarius A. Unfortunately for Alfred, tonight's efforts to observe the black hole go belly up when the computer crashes. And by the time it's up and running again, that leg of the flight is almost over and we're about to turn the corner for that final look at Uranus and its rings before heading home to Christchurch. I'm tired but exhilarated I've now flown at 43,000 feet in the stratosphere with NASA, 
I've rubbed shoulders with astrophysicists. I've asked lots of dumb questions and drunk lots of water. I haven't had to use my emergency personal oxygen supply and my coffee cup with its locking lid has functioned perfectly. Dr Carl's been having a very good time too. I'm having an amazingly good time. Uh, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm in a religious cathedral in Europe or the pyramids in Egypt or a temple in Asia where what I'm seeing here is the combined brilliant output of a team of people. In the case of Europe and Egypt, centuries of work. Here, it's building on maybe three or four decades of work, continually refining it. And the goal that we've got is a telescope shoved inside an aeroplane. And if you look back at one of the biggest telescopes, which is a 100-inch Mount Wilson telescope, which is the biggest telescope for about half a century, we've got the same size telescope stuffed into an aeroplane. That's absolutely astonishing. And they make it work. And they're finding stuff they couldn't find out any other way. So it's not just the the astronomy, which is really amazing, and what they're discovering, but the fact that a team of humans, men and women, could work together and create such an amazing bit of high technology. And even something like the door that goes up and down and how they've managed the wind buffeting. We're going through the air at 800, 900 kilometres an hour and how they've got the five layers like an onion of supporting it so the aeroplane wobbles around but the telescope doesn't. Wherever you look, every single tiny thing has been engineered to be perfect, like the mark of an obsessive person. I've just got so much respect for what we humans can do. Pure science always feeds in to the common knowledge. Got no idea what it will do, but it will feed back. Thanks, Dr Carl, and a big thanks to everyone who flew with us on Sophia Flight 422. The Sophia Flying Telescope is a joint project between NASA and the German Aerospace Centre, DLR. If you'd like to listen to that story again or see some pictures, then head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. That's all for now, but you can stay in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're RNZ Science. Kia ora mai. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.